0: You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll talk with independent journalist and writer David Talbot about experiencing and recovering from a stroke.
1: Anyone who's disabled in some way, I hope they take some kind of encouragement and, and inspiration from my book because that's why I wrote it. I wrote it to say I got through this, I am getting through this. I have lingering issues. I can't see straight still, I have to wear special glasses. I'm permanently dizzy. I have to walk outside with a cane. I can't drive. I'm not <laughs> the man I once was. And at 69, pushing 70, you know, you're, makes you very aware of your fragility. And I'm also very aware now, in a deeper way, of other people's fragility.
0: I'm Laura Wennis, and this is Civic.
1: Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.
0: The first sign of David Talbot's stroke came at dinner with friends where the wine was flowing and the mood was celebratory. He says it was like the lights had dimmed in his brain. The moment passed, and it would be more than a day before he would end up in the hospital, facing the possibility of his death. The stroke attacked his ability to swallow, to care for himself, and, devastatingly, to speak and write. David Talbot, after all, is a best-selling author, a journalist, and the founder of Salon.com. With intensive work and help from others and a lot of patients, he recovered these abilities, and this year released a book about the experience, Between Heaven and Hell. He'll be speaking at an event with the Institute on Aging on Monday, October 5th at 5.30 p.m. There's no charge for attending, but donations are accepted. You can find more information at ioaging.org. I talked with David about his recovery, his book, the coronavirus pandemic, and about journalism. Reading your most recent book, your memoir about your stroke... You use this word to describe the experience of having had your stroke, um, of lying in a hospital bed, severely affected physically and mentally. And you use this word exalted. You felt exalted. Why? How?
1: Yeah, it was, you know, it's been almost three years now, but I can still recall it with uh, great clarity, um. I felt exalted to be alive. I thought I was dying. I thought uh, I was saying goodbye, actually, the first night of my stroke. It took, uh, it elapsed over about a 48 hour period. And so the first night I felt I was dying. I I felt parts of my body going numb. Uh, I I was paralyzed on my right side from my crown of my head to my toes. And so I felt I was leaving this world and I felt you know okay about it strangely i didn't i wasn't panicking i wasn't in terror uh, i felt kind of a an acceptance but uh, my wife camille and my oldest son joe who's a filmmaker of some note um both had other ideas and they uh implored me very strongly as i was bidding farewell to my family gathered around my hospital bed to to know stay with us you're not going anywhere we need you and when i realized i wasn't going to go anywhere a day or so later laying in bed at the stroke ward in davies hospital um, then you know a kind of uh like you say exalted state overtook me um i was glad that i was alive my mother had a stroke my aunt when i was young i saw how it diminished them intellectually severely and they had become essentially different people and yet i knew at this point even after 48 48 hours of you know considerable physical damage that my mind was still relatively intact so i was exuberant
0: you're right that being a patient has taught you patience and empathy, and since you know your care as a as a patient that who was in the hospital and in outpatient care it lasted for a very long time for many months, you had time to absorb the lessons of your infirmity. You're going to be speaking on Monday the 5th at the Institute on Aging at an event about your experiences and your recovery. And I think people understand that needing help with activities of daily living, at their, as they're called, and, and going through a recovery is difficult and maybe humbling. But can you say more about those lessons of your infirmity and the patience that you developed as a patient? What about that state-inspired patience rather than just frustration?
1: Well... I think it was a couple of things. One, as I say, I was happy to be alive. I yeah. knew I was a mess, though. I was a physical mess. I couldn't swallow. I couldn't eat on my own. I couldn't pee uh, on my own. I couldn't stand up and walk without help. Um, I I saw double. Uh, I still have vision issues. I still have lingering uh, issues. Um, I had major speech issues. And and Rebecca Riley, I'm so glad. Uh, the nurse who was in charge of, uh, actually it's not a nurse, she's a therapist in charge of my speech rehab uh, will be joining me on stage at the Institute on Monday. And it was her, I think, uh, kind of perseverance and enthusiasm and, uh, and commitment to me as well as the entire staff there that filled me with some hope. I I mentioned the book, there was only one doctor who was, a surgeon who actually, you know, cast me into great doubt about my future and and, and really made me cry, break down crying one day because he was so abrupt and so cold in his assessment of my future. Mm. But other than this one particular fellow, uh, the, the entire staff there was so supportive and so believing in me that I began to believe in myself. Um, and I, I was trying harder for them in a way. You know, I didn't want to let them down. Uh, there were days, many days, I was in the hospital for five weeks in the stroke ward. When I just didn't want to get up, it, it's, it takes so much effort mentally and physically to go through this kind of rehab. Uh, you know, I wasn't young, I was 67, and there were some days that all that was getting me out of bed was their kind of um, expectations of me, the staff, and I, I couldn't let them
0: down. I'd like you to talk maybe a little bit more, if you would, about the the doctor who made you cry, um, and also maybe a bit about the process of getting care and the intake process, because you know that's that's something that to me seems like it can be an expression or a figment of our our healthcare system, just medical professionals who are under a lot of duress and who don't have time to look terribly closely at people or who don't have time to make a lot of considerations about how what they're delivering is landing um there's a part there's a part in the book where you describe the ambulance crew arguing with hospital staff about there being space for you and you write about sort of laughing thinking that you were going to die because of a bureaucratic screw up um, I, I, can you talk about that some more and, and having to face that and, and go through that?
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the thing, things that enabled me to actually get through this all. It was my dark sense of humor, which, <laughs> was, <laughs> which became even darker, I think, in the midst of my agony. Yeah, well, I was initially taken by my wife because it was the closest hospital. We live in Bernal Heights to um, St. Luke's, it was called at the time. It, it has since been... Fortunately, uh, rebranded and relaunched under a different name. But I have to say, it was it was a, uh, a hellhole, <laughs> and uh, they tried to kill me several times in that <laughs> the course of that twenty four hours. They kept misdiagnosing diagnosing me. My sister finally over the phone, long distance from Portland, Oregon. She's a doctor, and she she t- said to my wife, "He's having a stroke. Get him to a stroke board where they knew what where they know what they're doing." So. Finally, uh, there was a, we did arrange, uh, or my, my family arranged, to have me transported to the stroke ward at Davies Hospital a couple of miles away. But that was, it turned out to be, a, as you say, an incredibly difficult task. Uh, it took almost uh, probably 12 hours or more for me f- to get the ambulance to the hospital for my family, to, and then to load me on. They were quite efficient, the ambul- ambulance crew, when they finally arrived. Um, and they were my heroes because, was, as you say, I was being trans- transported there midway to Davies, and the, uh, the, the chief of the ambulance crew was on the phone to Davies, and, and, he, and he said all of a sudden, what do you mean you don't have room for him? We're, we're almost there. We're two minutes away.
0: I mean, oh, my God.
1: <laughs> so I, I realized that if I was taken back to St. Luke's at that point, my odds of surviving were not very strong. So I did, I I looked out the window, I saw the city that I love so much, San Francisco passing before my eyes. And I thought, you know, this might be my last journey through the the city. My wife was there, Mm. you know, she was upset, of course. Uh, But the ambulance crew chief was such a hero. He was such a strong dude that he wouldn't take literally no for an answer. He said, I'm bringing this man in, I don't care what you're telling me. And you're gonna make room for him. And he did, that's what he did. And they did have to make room for me because of his insistence. I was in no shape. My wife was too distraught. We were in no shape to, like, demand that they you know, take me into the stroke ward. But it was the ambulance crew chief who did it. You know, months later when I was in good enough shape to do this, I t- I tried through a friend to track him down. She's my researcher on my, all my books, Karen Croft. She's a very diligent and very dogged researcher. And, you know... She uh, she tried very hard to find him. We never were able to, though. So if he's out there listening, he remembers this day in November 2017. Um, you know, I owe him a great debt of gratitude. Mm.
0: It does seem a bit salient right now with the coronavirus pandemic. And I know that there's people organizing right now for patient care, for equitable access to care, I'm wondering what you tell other people if they have to seek care about advocating for themselves in a system where things like this happen.
1: Well, it's a very good point. And there's not a day that goes by when I don't read about... Excuse me. When I don't read about others... I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) That's okay. Take your time. It's distressing.
1: Uh, Yeah. I just, when I read about others who are suffering, how hard it is for me, me, even now, to realize what they're going through, their families are going through. And I, I do have a deeper empathy, I think, for all these people who are suffering from COVID today. Um, And the lingering issues that many of them have to face, even when they're released from a hospital, if they do make it. Um, So, yeah, I I realized that I was in no shape. And, of course, people who are hospitalized with uh, COVID-19 are in no condition either to advocate for themselves. Uh, And they don't have loved ones around them because they're isolated in a ward and uh, because of fear of infection. So I just can't even fathom you know emotionally what they and their loved ones go through because i was fortunate in my situation just having suffered a stroke only uh, to have a loving network of people around me and i write a chapter about this in my book the circle of love and just This is really taking me by surprise, my feelings about this. But, you know, it was that circle of love, his family, his close friends, who insisted that I uh, get better and worked with the hospital staff to get me better. And I include in that circle of love people like Rebecca Riley, who was my uh, speech therapist, and uh, others on the ward. You know, they, they became my surrogate family during the five weeks I was there. They were there, of course, more often than my regular family because they work there. Uh, and it was the combination, you know, of the two that got me through it. So, yeah, I, I do feel a, a very deep uh, sense of pain and empathy for everyone who's uh, suffering this terrible uh, COVID-19 uh, plague right now. And it's, uh, you know, touched their family and so my
0: Going back to this notion of lessons um, from your infirmity, I mean, you do now live with the after effects of your stroke. Um, I'm wondering if there's something to be taken away here from your story, your experience about how we consider the experiences of seniors, people with disabilities, people who get by with assistance, either from mechanical devices or from companions, whether they're animals or they're people. Is there something there about, you know, what how we should think about their experiences? And are you, are you saying something about that with this memoir?
1: Yeah, I think I am. And I hope that people who, uh, you know, whether it's a heart condition, whether it's survivors of COVID, anyone who's disabled in some way, I hope they take some kind of encouragement and, and inspiration from my book, because that's why I wrote it. I wrote it to say I got through this. I am getting through this. As you say, I have lingering uh, issues. I can't see straight still. I have to wear special glasses. I can't, I'm permanently dizzy. I have to walk outside with a cane. I can't drive. I'm not <laughs> the man I once was. And at 69, pushing 70, you know, you're, makes you very aware of your fragility. And I'm also very aware now in a deeper way of other people's. A fragility. You know, this book began on Facebook and social media, and uh, I had many people write to me as I was posting these uh, messages from my wounded self. And I always remember, you know, many of them were beautiful, eloquent statements of their own anguish or their loved ones. And one said, you know, we're all just tempor- temporarily abled. <laughs> and that mm. struck me, you know, because. You know, people my age in the 60s, you know, we're all walking wounded at this point. And a lot of younger people I know are walking wounded, you know, whether it's uh, they're they are survivors of cancer or they're, um, they're in wheelchairs or they're somehow damaged by life uh, physically, mentally. You know, a lot of us um, suffer various ailments. So I don't by any means think of myself as unusual. I felt in some way that I was joining a new army after my stroke, and I mm-hmm. felt uh, a kind of a deeper camaraderie, I think, with millions of other people. You know, even on stage last night, I was watching the presidential debate, which, was, of course, was a—it's just insane. And, and uh, like all Americans, I was just stared, you know, open mouthed at what was happening, and this uh, incredible bully, uh, Trump, unleashed on Joe Biden who actually, I thought, did a pretty good job of handling himself, despite what a he became. But, you know, Joe Biden, you can see, it has to still, at his old age, conquer his stammering, his stuttering. And, uh, you know, uh, every one of us, mostly, has some kind of, I think, affliction, some kind of burden that we have to deal with. And it's the way we deal with it that makes us human.
0: I'm speaking with writer and journalist David Talbot about his book Between Heaven and Hell: The Story of My Stroke. I do actually I would love to go down that road of talking about the debate and the current political situation, but I'd I'd like to go back a little bit to this sharing of experiences because there's there's the element of compassion uh, and and building understanding about the things that we go through and being walking wounded, but there's also sort of a practical element to this. There's this kind of frightening fact that you bring up. You write, Without a constant flow of oxygen, brain cells start dying at an alarmingly brisk speed. 1.9 million per minute. So speedy treatment is essential. You didn't quite get that. You actually drove by the hospital in your own car on your way home from the dinner with friends where you had the beginnings of your stroke. But in sharing these experiences, I believe, if I've read this correctly, you, um, other people were able to um, not make that same error. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes. I mean, this, again, is why I value my ability to write. Because Mm. I was able to warn others of what I'd been through. Uh, I had something called a a stuttering stroke. Uh, It elapsed over a a 48-hour period. It was due to a clot that had lodged itself in the uh, part of my brain, small clot, and was slowly cutting off oxygen to that part of my brain, which controls some rather important functions like breathing and swallowing and and eating. Rather Uh, crucial. Rather crucial. (laughs) <laughs> so um unfortunately I you only have a window uh to realize that you are having a stroke and if it's due to a clot, then you can take yourself to the hospital or be rushed there by a loved one and they can administer something called a a, a medication called TPA, which dissolves the clot. Now it does have some slight risk of uh hemorrhaging and you can die. <laughs> but you and your you know family or your loved ones can make that determination and i think the risk has been significantly reduced even in recent years so i would probably would have taken that risk had i known what was happening to me unfortunately i didn't it was a very clandestine stroke in my case i went home to bed i thought i you know i had too much to drink i was some, with some friends i had a few glasses of wine they still let me drive home that you could tell they were a little alarmed by my behavior, but mm-hmm. that, I slept very, you know, soundly that night. Got up the next morning, made breakfast for my whole family, you know, went about my day, and it wasn't until almost twenty-four hours later when all hell broke loose. I suddenly couldn't see straight. I felt, you know, this strange out-of-body feeling overtaking me. I knew that something profoundly wrong was was occurring but that took 24 hours. And by then my window closed, I couldn't have the TPA uh, administered uh, by a uh, a hospital. Well, I wrote about this experience on my Facebook post. It's now my book, this chapter, Uh, and a friend of my family happened to read it. And she, not long after was driving on the freeway in Berkeley, And realized she was having a stroke. And she drove herself to uh, Alta Bay's hospital, where they did give her TPA. Uh, I saw her months later at the opening of my son Joe Talbot's film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, at the Castro Theater. Remember when we all used to go to theaters? (laughs) Those were the days. (laughs) Yeah, and
0: also you just casually dropped that in there, that your son was the co-writer and director of (laughs) The Last Black Man of San Francisco.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm very proud, as you can tell. Yes. But anyway, yeah, there she was. I can't, I don't want to say her name because she wants to keep it quiet uh, for <laughs> her own reasons, but um, she, you couldn't ne- never have told that she had a stroke. She was fine. She's in much better shape than I am uh, perfectly normal, so to speak. And because she had been able to get uh, within the window, have this, uh, this pill uh, and, and, you know, take it at the hospital. So, if you are having signs of a stroke and it turns out to be related to a clot, please take yourselves to a hospital or be rushed to a hospital.
0: I understand that you were a bit reluctant to write a memoir and now that you have and it and it was, you know, and it has had this effect to be writing about it whether in memoir form or in Facebook post form, um it's had you know, a practical useful effect on people around you can you talk about the importance of people who have had experiences like this and recovered or, or are still struggling with the fallout of their injuries or illnesses to talk about the experiences? What effects can that have?
1: Well, as I see, as I said, it does create a kind of solidarity with uh, invisible people in many cases. I mean, you know the people I tended to hang out with in most throughout most of my life are other journalists, writers, um, creative people, filmmakers, uh, political activists. I mean that's my that's my tribe. And suddenly, you know, after I wrote this book, I had a stroke, um, and I was for a while in the old days before the shutdown. I was, the book was published in January, and I was able to uh, do some public speaking, which was. An event in itself. Rebecca, my speech therapist, had promised to me back in the hospital years ago that I would someday indeed be speaking at public events. And I was. And she came to one of them, which was wonderful to see her there. Did you
0: believe her originally when she told you that?
1: No, no. Mm. I thought she was just trying to buck me up. Mm. But uh, she was right, and I, I did. I spoke maybe I don't know a dozen different places, at all sides of crowds. Um, and then the shutdown occurred because of the pandemic, and so I went back into my shell. But uh, before that, I was. I think the best part of these events were people always came up to me afterwards and had their own stories of of trauma and heartbreak. I remember in, in Palo Alto had a bookstore down there, and Kepler's. There's a woman, she's a young woman. As I say, you don't have to be old to be kind of disabled in some ways or aggrieved. So she was a woman in her maybe mid or late 30s. And she had some rare condition where she had continued to have a a series of many strokes. And she was a mother, a single mother. And she was just wondering, you know, at what point would the strokes become so grave? that she wouldn't be able to take care of her daughter anymore. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: there she was, you know, talking to me and certainly much more heroic than I am because, uh, you know, I don't have to face those kind of ongoing calamities the way she does. So I'm, I think have come out of this being even more kind of, uh, cognizant and appreciative of people's heroism, people whose, uh, are unsung heroes, heroes who just get through their day, and have uh, just getting through their day is an achievement.
0: I'd like to change direction if you'd indulge me and talk a bit about journalism, um, since you know you are a journalist. You you know founded Salon dot com, were editor in chief and chairman of the board. Which oh my goodness, <laughs> that sounds like a lot. But I'm curious. I, I I would love to get your take on the media coverage of the current political climate. We just had this debate yesterday, um, and there has been a lot of chatter and a lot of reaction. You've covered a lot of different uh, topics that um, other organizations and journalists do not really want to touch, and certainly other realms of the media world don't really want to touch, and and have dealt with blowback from that. Here we are in a totally, you know, different political era, in a time where the meaning of scandal is <laughs> has changed. What's what's your take? How are you reflecting on how news media are handling
1: this? Well, you know, I, I, throughout most of my life, unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, I felt like an outsider from the media pack. I, always, mm-hmm. I, I knew at a young age I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I was making magazines by cutting out pictures when I was a kid and writing my own stories to go with them. <laughs> So I was kind of a, a, a magazine or journalism nerd at a young age. I, I didn't go to J school. I just started doing it. And mm-hmm. I started doing it when I was in college in Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz in the 60s. And the first story I wrote was about midwives who were practicing without a license. They were outlaw midwives in the hills uh, of uh, Santa Cruz, these hippies, who I thought they were heroic. They were going through you know, mud and, and, and up steep hills to help deliver babies. So I, I went with them and I wrote about that, and that was published in Rolling Stone. And I thought, wow, this is what I wanted to do. Well, you know, the truth is that, that uh, journalism is a, um, a kind of a closed craft, a closed guild. Um, it's a very, it's, most journalists I've met over my life are rather timid conservative people. They don't, they're not like the movie heroes that we see who are enterprising, courageous people. They want to keep their jobs and they keep their heads down. Um, for whatever reason, ever since high school, when I was kicked out of high school, a military school in L- L.A. during the Vietnam War, I've had a problem with authority. <laughs> <laughs> and so anywhere I worked, I kind of, you know, started butting heads with uh, my bosses so I had to really launch Salon back in 1995, the, the dot-com, you know, kind of uh, days. And uh, it was an independent publication. I was able to recruit and hire some of my favorite people. They were my tribe, uh, men and women, many of whom I'd worked with before in various, uh, you know, situations. And uh, we were the inmates running the asylum in those days because the big media companies didn't know what the web was. They thought the World Wide Web, I say this in my book, was some kind of international tennis tournament. I mean, <laughs> I, I remember going into some meetings with you know prospective investors or advertisers and they, they were completely you know bewildered about what this new medium was at the time. So because we were an early pioneer yeah, uh, in this brave new world, we got away with a lot, yeah. and we put out for ten years the publication of our dreams, and it wasn't just me. I had a great group of people, including speaking last night, Jake Tapper, who's now at CNN, uh, Joan Walsh, uh, who's also on TV a lot. Um, you know, it, it, the list goes on and on. I named them all. Uh, or many of them in my book. Michelle Goldberg you now with the New York Times, Dwight Garner with the New York Times, Laura Miller. So I'm very proud of this crew that we put together back in the 90s. You know, I don't think New York saw it coming. They couldn't believe that this great media enterprise was coming out of the left coast because they're so snobby and provincial in New York. They can't believe that any talent uh, exists outside uh, of their zip codes but you know i think for 10 years we did the kind of journalism that i that we're proud of it was it was we took risks we uh went against the grain during the clinton impeachment and began investigating the Starr, star the special prosecutor and his right-wing juggernaut instead of clinton you know we weren't big fans of bill clinton but we thought he deserved to complete his presidency without being lynched by the beltway media and the right wing and at the time we can't forget Newt Gingrich, God help us, was the alternative to Bill Clinton, who had his own issues. So I was very proud of the reporting, the investigative work we did. And I thought we'd put together what I wanted, was my dream, which was a smart tabloid. We reached a mass audience. We weren't just elite intellectuals, but we had really smart journalism, along with kind of fun, entertaining journalism and investigative, hard-hitting journalism. And that was my idea of what San Francisco should be all about journalistically. I'd grown up with Ramparts Magazine under the great editors Warren Hinkle and Robert Shear, and uh, the early days of Rolling Stone when I was out here in San, San Francisco with Hunter Thompson and other great writers. So I thought, you know, what we had to do was something new and different and, and risk taking and dangerous. And we did. There were bomb threats, people threatened to kill me with advertising boycotts. And I knew we were doing something right <laughs> when we started getting targeted that way.
0: So looking at the way that people think about news media now and the media landscape, I mean, how, how is it doing? <laughs> what is the health of the media landscape like now under this overtly hostile federal administration?
1: Well, on the one hand, as I say, I I can't belong to any club that would have me as a a member. So I've always been kind of an outsider within the media guild, Mm -hmm. Uh, and particularly in New York, which I think is very uh, snobby, establishment-oriented media. And I'm proud that I never moved back to New York. I lived for a while in D.C., but never uh, New York. And I'm proud that I did all the kind of things I wanted to do in San Francisco. But I'll give you an example. I had a New York Times bestseller called The Devil's Chessboard. Mm-hmm. It was a very deep, wet, very well-written, I think the Daily Beast said John Le Carre and Graham Greene, two heroes of mine, could do no better. And yet it was all true. It was the story of the CIA uh, and the rise of the CIA and why I call America's secret government under Alan Dulles, who I think was a very profoundly uh, important and uh, and dangerous uh, spy master who ran the CIA for many years during the Cold War period. That book, because I named the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, in there, it it didn't dwell on this, but there was in there the media complicity with the CIA during the Cold War period under uh, Alan Dulles. Uh, They were very friendly, the publishers, the editors with the CIA people. They went to parties together. The kids went to the same schools. They were they were the same crowd. And therefore, you know, uh, Alan Dulles could literally get away with murder, literally, around the world, in Iran, in Guatemala, in Cuba, in the U.S., uh, without there being a strong scrutiny from the press who were all his pals. So as a result, that book was the only book I've written, major book, that was not reviewed by the New York Times, completely uh, ignored blacklisted uh the book review editor the washington post told my publicist we're not going to touch this one with a 10-foot pole yep so that to me was again as if i needed at that point in my career i didn't but it was confirmation again that you can only go so far within the american corporate media in telling the truth and if Mm. you certainly bite the corporate media itself they want nothing to do with you so uh you know but again when I, that book became a New York Times bestseller, despite the New York Times, I took great pride in that. And I, I guess I do feel at this point in my life that, I, that there's a reason to be proud of my independence and that I don't get awards. I'm not embraced by these people. I'm not on television. I'm not on CNN or MSNBC as a pundit. Although I have many things to say, (laughs) as my (laughs) Facebook readers know, about uh, our current events. Um, But, you know, I'm not part of that club, and I'll never be, and I don't want to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, speaking of of your writing about the CIA, you write in this book about a TV writer who asked you, why aren't you dead yet? Um, And that was in reference to the stuff that you've written, not in reference to a stroke because you hadn't had it yet. I'm curious what it's like for you to have written about sort of the clandestine actions of the U.S. government, about topics that other media just don't want to touch. Now, observing the way that national media navigate overt calls for authoritarianism from the highest levels of U.S. government.
1: Well, this is what I was headed towards saying and i forgot to say it so thank you for helping me complete the loop i now find myself in the very awkward position of actually cheering on many of the uh journalists who i have dismissed for years as hopelessly mm. establishment uh because we have a situation now where uh, a civil society in america democratic america is facing the Monumental threat to our freedoms uh, in the form of the Trump administration. So you know, despite my many criticisms of the uh, New York Times from the Iraq war uh, on, uh, I applaud them so strongly now when they do things like they did the other day with their investigative team uncovered the tawdry record of uh, Trump's taxes. Mm -hmm. And how he managed to only pay, well, many years, nothing in federal tax. And his first two years or first year he ran for office and then his first year in office in the White House paid only 750. And this is a guy who crows all the time what a billionaire he is. He thinks taxes are for losers. So, you know, if we did not have The New York Times, if we didn't have their investigative uh, prowess, you know, Americans would know that story which is a vital story for America to know before the election. So, look, at this point, you know, I'm in this awkward position of of both thinking of these establishment journalists as heroes, which they are, and also thinking of them as limited in how far they will go. You know, at the same time, of course, they're attacking Trump righteously. I think, you know, MSNBC, the liberal News channel is filled with the national security, uh, you know, officials, with people who uh, from the CIA, the FBI, and so on, uh, from the military. So they have a very narrow view of what America should be. My view of what America should be is a post imperial view. Uh, I think we, America has to reimagine itself. That's why I was so fascinated with the presidency of John Kennedy in the early Mm. 60s. Because I think that's what he bravely was doing, trying to imagine a post-imperial America beyond the Cold War. And I think he paid for that vision with his life.
0: I have run over our time, uh, but I want to give you an opportunity to say anything that I didn't give you a chance to talk about, whether it's about your most recent book or about um, news media in the current era.
1: <laughs> well, I'll say one more thing, because I wrote a book about San Francisco history, which a lot of people locally love. Se- mm-hmm. Season, Season of the, the Witch. Witch. And I think, you know, we have maybe I'm a hopeless optimist, but I think we have another opportunity to reimagine San Francisco in the uh, wake of the pandemic and the kind of uh, exodus of many of the tech uh, industry much of the tech industry. Um, So, you know, we've been colonized by the tech industry for the last few years. Um, You know, I've been a critic of the tech industry. I'm not a Luddite. I launched, after all, (laughs) an online news organization, Organization. (laughs) one of the first ones. So I, am you know, I am in, awe of a technology's possibilities. But I think the tech industry obviously dominated the city to a great extent and led to some of the problems. My son actually uh, explored in his movie, the Last Black Man in San Francisco, gentrification and displacement of thousands and thousands of people, long-term San Franciscans. I, I think we might be getting though, in the wake of the pandemic, another chance to reinvent the city and bring back some of the people we've lost and make San Francisco a more culturally and politically interesting city again.
0: David, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was David Talbot, journalist, writer, founder of Salon.com, and most recently the author of Between Heaven and Hell, The Story of My Stroke. He'll be speaking at an event with the Institute on Aging on Monday, October 5th at 5.30 p.m. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic.
1: Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.